child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away, and he was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, "I'm gonna be like you, Dad. You know I'm gonna be like you." My son turned ten just the other day. He said, "Thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw?" I said, "Not today. I got a lot to do." He said, "That's okay." And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. He said, "I'm gonna be like him. Yeah, you know I'm gonna be like him." And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man on the moon. You're coming home, Dad. I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. I am the father. Now I let off with cats in a cradle because it's pretty much the opposite of what you want to be as a father. If you listen to the lyrics and read them, you you'll see what I'm talking about. It's kind of like if you if you listen to the Garth Brooks Thunder Rolls. It was a catchy tune at first, but then you read the lyrics, it's like, man, this guy's a terrible person. <laughs> Not Garth, but even though Garth did cheat on his wife, but yeah, you see where I'm going with it. Well, welcome to the Father's Day edition of Census Fidelium Radio Podcast. It's your host, Steve Cunningham of CensusFidelium.us, and we're going to take most of this from Joan Carroll Cruz's book, Lay Saints, Models of Family Life. So basically what we're looking for today is saintly fathers. And we'll start off today with Saint Adelbald of Ostrovent. He died in 650 AD. As the son of a distinguished family, Audubald spent much of his time in the court of Dagobert I and Clovis II, and may have been the Duke of Douay. While on expedition in Gascony, Audubald became friends with a noble lord named Ernold, whose daughter, Rictrude, became Audubald's bride. The wedding was performed with great pomp but the union did not please certain members of the bride's family. Yet, in spite of the critical assessment of the groom by his in-laws and their dire predictions for the couple's future, the marriage proved to be a happy one. Early in their wedded life, the young couple became interested in performing works of mercy and spent time visiting the sick, relieving the poor, feeding the hungry, and converting prisoners. The four children were born to them, a son and three daughters. All four children imitated their parents in the ways of virtue and acts of charity. In the year 650, 16 years after his marriage, Audubald was recalled to Gascony, never to return. When he reached the vicinity, he was attacked and killed by a number of his wife's vindictive relatives. His remains rested in the monastery in France, but afterward his head was taken to Douai. This we learn from an ancient manuscript of the Church of St. Aime, where there was at one time a magnificent chapel dedicated to Saints Audubald, Rictrude, and their son, St. Marant. Exhibited there for public veneration were statues of the Holy Trio. That of St. Aldebald was draped in a robe covered with lilies. St. Richard's statue was covered in the Benedictine habit and held a miniature replica of the Abbey of Marchiennes in her hand. And St. Marant was represented with a scepter in his right hand and towers in his left. The whole family, father, mother, three daughters, and one son are honored as saints of the church. Also included in this holy gathering are Aldebald's grandmother, St. Gertrude of Haymatch, and Richtrude's sister, St. Bertha, who, after being widowed, became a nun and the foundress of the monastery of Blangy in Artois. Now, I let off with Cats in a Cradle 
because it's pretty much the opposite of what you want to be as a father. If you listen to the lyrics and read them, you, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's kind of like if you, if you listen to the Garth Brooks' Thunder Rolls. It was a catchy tune at first, but then you read the lyrics, it's like, man, this guy's a terrible person. <laughs> Not Garth, but even though Garth did cheat on his wife, but yeah, you see where I'm going with St. Elzair was born in Provence, France in the year 1285, and he was still a child when Charles II, King of Sicily, arranged his engagement to Delphina, daughter and heiress to the Lord of Prumoykel. Delphina was an orphan, and they married at 15 years old. It is claimed by at least one biographer that the couple decided on their wedding night to live as brother and sister, and it is known that in 1315 in the chapel of the castle, after they received Holy Communion, they stood at the foot of the altar and publicly pronounced their vows of perpetual continence. This is claimed by some to indicate that both were inclined toward a religious vocation, but entered into the marriage state under obedience to the advice of their elders. He was 23 years old when he inherited his father's honors and estates. He became the baron of the province and count of Ariano in the kingdom of Naples. When he had to return to Italy to take possession of the lordship of Ariano, he found the Italians poorly disposed towards him as a Frenchman. Then, when the rebellion was threatened, his cousin, the Prince of Taranto, advised him to subdue the rebels with executions and force of arms, a course of action which he refused to take. Instead of pursuing a confrontation, he spent three years in opposing the rebellion with tact, gentleness, meekness, and patience. His friends reproachfully accused him of being indolent and cowardly, but in the end the rebels abandoned their effort. With submission and respect, they invited the saint to take possession of his territory. In explaining why he bore the insults, injuries, and difficulties with patience, he said, quote, If I receive any affront of feel impatience begin to rise in my breast, I turn all my thoughts toward Jesus Christ crucified and say to myself, Can what I suffer bear any comparison to what Christ was pleased to undergo for me? He once again countered insults with patience and forgiveness when he was going through papers that had been left by his father. Several letters were found that had been written by a certain gentleman that suggested that Elziar should be disinherited because he was more of a monk than a soldier. When Delphina read the insults and criticisms that were also mentioned in the letters, she expressed the hope that her husband would deal with the writer as he deserved. But Elziar reminded her that Christ commands us not to seek revenge but to forgive injuries and to overcome hatred with charity. He destroyed the letters and never spoke of them again. When the gentleman came to him, not knowing that Elziar read the letters, Elziar greeted him affectionately and won his friendship. He exercised charity in a number of areas. He visited prisoners who were condemned to death, converted many with tender words, and secretly aided orphans, widows, and the poor. He recited the divine office every day and communicated almost as often. He once said to Delphina, quote, I do not think that any man on earth can enjoy a happiness equal to that which I have in Holy Communion. In one of his letters to her, he wrote, quote, You want to hear often of me? Go then and visit our loving Lord Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament and enter in spirit into his sacred heart. You will always find me there. While he was devout and spent much time in prayer, he did not neglect the temporal concerns of his position. Diligent in the care of his household, he drew up the following regulations, quote, Everyone in my family shall hear daily Mass, whatever business he may have. If God be well served, nothing will be wanting. Let no persons be idle. In the morning, a little time shall be allowed for meditation, 
but away with those who are perpetually in the church to avoid doing their work. This they do not because they love contemplation, but because they want to have their work done for them. When a difference or quarrel arises, let the scriptural precept be observed that it might be composed before the sun goes down. I know the impossibility of living among men and not having something to suffer. Scarcely a man is in tune with himself one whole day, but not to be willing to bear with or pardon others is diabolical, and to love enemies and to render good for evil is the touchstone of the sons of God. I strictly command that no officer or servant under my jurisdiction or authority injure any man in goods, honor, or reputation, or oppress any poor person, or damage anyone under color of doing my business. I do not want my castle to be a cloister or my people hermits. Let them be merry and enjoy recreation at the right times, but not with a bad conscience or with danger of transgressing against God. He himself set the example in everything that he prescribed to others, and Blessed Delphina concurred with her husband in all his views and was perfectly obedient to him. Although strictly observing their vow of chastity, they were nevertheless perfectly suited for one another. They were warm, affectionate, caring, while harmony and peace held sway in their dealings with one another and their household. He was sent to Paris and became fatally ill. While he awaited death, he made a general confession and continued to confess almost every day of his illness, even though he is said never to have offended God by mortal sin. The history of Christ's passion was read to him every day, and in this he found great comfort in spite of his pains. After receiving the Holy Eucharist for the last time, Elziar said with great joy, quote, This is my hope. In this I desire to die. On September 27, 1323, he died in the arms of Father Francis, a Franciscan friar who had been his confessor, in accord with his orders, his body was carried to Apt, and there interred in the Church of the Franciscans. Fourteen years earlier, about the year 1309, he had assisted as godfather at the baptism of William of Grimald. William was a sickly child whose restoration to health was credited to the prayers of his godfather. Fifty-three years later, this William became Pope Urban V, and in 1369 he signed the decree of canonization of his godfather, Elziar, whose name is listed in the Roman Martyrology on September 27th, the day of his death. Now, St. Leonidas. The 300 Spartans gave their last breath to defend it. No, not that Leonidas from the movie 300, but St. Leonidas. Among the saints who died in Egypt for the faith, one of the best known is St. Leonidas, a learned Christian philosopher. He was a married man and father of seven sons, of which the eldest, Origen, became known as the great Christian scholar. In fact, the fame of his son eclipsed that of his father, causing Leonidas to sometimes be identified simply as the father of origin. But it was due to the father that the son was able to reach such a reputation for learning, since Leonidas, aware of his child's many talents and keen intellect, gave origin the primary education upon which his Greek literary studies developed. Leonidas, likewise, helped origin in the studies of the Holy Scripture, he no doubt had his son memorize what they studied together, since as an adult origin knew the Bible so well that he could recite extended passages at will and could associate verses throughout the Bible on the basis of key words. Leonidas also provided his sons with a wholesome family life in which family prayer, the practices of the faith, and love of God held the greatest importance. When the persecution was at its height in Alexandria, Leonidas, who was the illustrious citizen of the city, was apprehended and in prison on order of Laetus, the governor of Egypt. When it seemed for certainty that his father would be martyred, Origen, then 17 years old, was so eager 
to join his father in dying for the faith that his mother locked up all his clothes to keep him at home. While Leonidas was in prison, Origen wrote a touching letter to him, encouraging him to accept with courage and joy the crown that was offered to him. Origen added, quote, Take heed, sir, that you do not for our sakes change your mind. Leonidas stood firm in his faith and was beheaded in the year 202. The saint no doubt felt great regret at leaving his family, but we might surmise that he felt satisfied that his properties would adequately support them. The state, however, having put him to death, confiscated Leonidas' property and possessions, which reduced his wife and children to extreme poverty. St. Leopold III, the Margrave of Austria, was affectionately known as Leopold the Good. He was born at Melk in 1073 and was brought up under the influence of the reforming bishop St. Altman of Passau. When he was 23 years old, he succeeded his father. In 1106, when he was 33 years old, he married Agnes, the daughter of Emperor Henry. Agnes was a widow who had borne two sons by her first husband. During her marriage with Leopold, 18 more children were added to the family. Eleven of these survived childhood. One of them was Otto, who was to become the Cistercian abbot of Marimond in Burgundy. It would be at Otto's request that St. Leopold would found the Abbey of Holy Cross in the year 1135. Another great foundation made by St. Leopold was Klosternberg near Vienna for Augustinian canons. Still under foundation was the Benedictine Monastery of Marizel in Styria, Austria, whose church is now a popular place of pilgrimage. By virtue of these important monasteries, Leopold did a great service to the church by making it possible for the true faith to be spread throughout Austria. After serving 40 years as Margrave of Austria, St. Leopold died in 1136 at the age of 63. He was buried in the Augustinian Abbey of Klosternberg, which he had founded. On January 6, 1485, 350 years after Leopold's death, Pope Innocent VIII proclaimed his canonization. It was the only canonization ceremony performed by this pope. Leopold was declared the national patron of Austria in 1663, with his feast being observed as a national holiday. The saint is usually pictured in a suit of armor with a flag and a model of a church. When Louis of Thuringia was 11 years old, he was betrothed to Elizabeth of Hungary, the daughter of King Andrew II. Elizabeth at that time was four years old, and according to the custom among ruling families, the child was taken into the castle of her intended husband to be educated in the traditions and culture of her adopted land. Louis was 16 years of age when he succeeded his father, Landgrave Hermann I. Five years later, in 1221, his marriage to Elizabeth was ratified. Louis was 21 years old and Elizabeth 14. The arranged marriage had been one of political expendency, but it proved to be also a marriage of virtuous souls and one of the happiest marriages recorded in the annals of the saints. The couple became parents of three children, one of whom was Blessed Gertrude of Altenburg. In his biography of St. Elizabeth, Count of Maltembert gave us a description of Blessed Louis, quote, The nobility and purity of his soul was manifest in his exterior. His manly beauty was celebrated by his contemporaries. All boast of the perfect proportion of his figure, the freshness of his complexion, his long fair hair, and the serene, benevolent expression of his countenance. Many imagine they saw in him a striking resemblance to the portrait which tradition has preserved of the Son of God made man. The charm of his smile was irresistible. His deportment was noble and dignified, the tone of his voice extremely sweet. No one could see him without loving him. What particularly distinguished him was an unstained purity of soul. 
This purity was tested on two occasions, which contemporary writers have related in some detail. The first incident occurred when a certain knight wanted to put Lewis's innocence to the test and found in the neighborhood village a young girl of remarkable beauty. He brought her to Lewis's chamber in the castle. Lewis, after answering the knock at the door, was bewildered when the girl entered. When Lewis asked the purpose of her visit, the knight replied that he had brought her so that Lewis might do with her what he pleased. At these words, Lewis took the knight aside, ordered him to restore the girl to her family, and warned that if any harm came to her, the knight would be hanged. The narrator of this incident stated that he concealed the name of this false knight to avoid giving scandal. At another time, Lewis was standing at a window looking down upon a square where the people were dancing. An attendant pointed out to him the wife of one of the citizens who was remarkable for her beauty and grace. The attendant offered to make her available to Lewis. Upon hearing this proposal, Lewis was so shocked that he turned to the servant and said, quote, Be silent. If ever again thou darest to sully my ears by such language, I will drive thee from my court. Holy Mass was celebrated every day in the presence of Lewis and his family, and it was with exemplary devotion that he assisted. He was a zealous defender of the rights of the church, the monasteries, and the poor. As an example of this, we are told that some of the Thuringian citizens who were robbed and beaten in Poland, Lewis demanded reparation, but when none was forthcoming, he led his troops into Poland and gained satisf satisfaction by force of battle. The same crime then occurred in Würzburg. Once again, Lewis marched, this time to recover stock that had been stolen from a traitor. It is claimed that no sovereign of his time surpassed him in courage, nor even in physical strength and agility in the exercises of the body. He had what is called a vehement passion for justice and is known to have su sufficiently punished violators of the law. He banished from his court those who were unkind to the poor and those who brought him false and malicious tales. Blasphemers and those who spoke impure words were condemned to wear a mark of shame in public. He is also known to have been cheerful and kind to his subjects and never to offend anyone by pride or coldness. In association with his wife, he was most loving and thoughtful, displaying, even in the presence of others, a tenderness which was well recorded by contemporary writers. Lewis in every way approved of and encouraged the charity and devotions of his wife. Once he found in his bed a leper who had asked for relief at the door of the castle. For a moment, Lewis was tempted to anger, but then he saw not the leper, but the crucified Son of God. As a result of this episode, he paid for the building for the Lazar, of the Lazar House on the slope of the Wartburg. At the request of the emperor, Lewis spent several months of court assisting the emperor in restoring peace between Bologna and the cities of Lombardy. Friar Berthold tells us that when Lewis returned home, Elizabeth, a thousand times or more, kissed him with her heart and with her mouth. When Lewis inquired how his people had fared during his long absence, Elizabeth replied, quote, I gave to God what was his, and God has kept us what is ours. To a complaining treasurer, Lewis replied, quote, let her do good and give to God whatever she will, so long as she leaves me Wartburg and Nuenberg. During the following year, Louis volunteered to follow Emperor Frederick II on the Sixth Crusade. He made his brother Henry regent and turn his energies to enlisting crusaders. To arouse men's hearts to his endeavor, he had a passion play presented in the streets of Eisnitz, and he visited the monasteries of his domain asking for prayers. On the feast of St. John the Baptist, he parted from Elizabeth and set out toward the Holy Sepulchre. When the troops reached Otranto, Lewis contracted the plague and became so seriously ill that the last sacraments were administered. The illness was to be mortal. Before Lewis died, it seemed to him that the cabin in which he lay was full of doves. Quote, I must fly away with these white doves, he said, and then died. 
the year was 1227. He was only 27 years of age. When news of his death reached Elizabeth, she cried, quote, The world is dead to me, and all that was pleasant in it. Blessed Lewis's final resting place was in the Benedictine Abbey of Reinhardsbrunn, which he had visited often, and where he is popularly called St. Ludwig. The character and life of Blessed Lewis are summed up in the noble motto, which he had chosen from his earliest years, quote, Piety, chastity, justice towards all. St. Nicholas of Flew. Although he is not recognized as the patron saint of Switzerland, St. Nicholas occupies a unique place in his countryman and is perhaps Switzerland's best-known religious figure. His history is interesting in that during his lifetime, he was a farmer, soldier, magistrate, judge, counselor, father of ten, and a hermit. He was born in 1417 of a relatively wealthy and much-respected farming family. His father was Henry von Heidt. His mother, Emma Robert, was a devout woman whose two sons, Nicholas and Peter, joined her in a religious organization known as the Friends of God. At the age of 22, this peace-loving man was drafted in the army and fought with, in the war with Zurich. A fellow soldier recorded that Nicholas did but little harm to the enemy, but rather always went to one side, prayed, and protected the defeated enemy as best he could. Sometime after this campaign, Nicholas married a religious-minded girl named Dorothea Whistling with whom he lived happily, but in 1460, he was again drafted into the army during the Thurgau War. This time he was the captive of a company consisting of a hundred men. In this position, he maintained strict discipline, restraining his soldiers from all accesses, and succeeded in saving the Dominican convent of St. Catherine at Diesenhofen, which others wanted to burn because it was suspected of being a refuge for the enemy. Upon his return to war, Nicholas's countrymen appointed him magistrate and judge and sent him to the councils and meetings where his clear-sighted wisdom was highly respected. By his own admission, he had a considerable authority as a judge and counselor, but he had said that he did not remember ever being unjust or having acted in consideration of the person's social position. Despite his obvious talents, he despised temporal honors and repeatedly refused the highest post of all, that of governor. A contemporary said of him, a noble simplicity ruled his speech. He displayed such balance of judgment in the cases brought before him, and his decision immediately convinced everyone as being right. His spirit of justice and partiality, as well as his reputation for piety and mercy, had gained for him widespread confidence, and he was often chosen arbiter in serious controversies. Another contemporary has said, quote, He was a friend of peace, a defender of widows and orphans. He was merciful and exhorted the others to show mercy. Throughout the years of his married life, the holy man continued the devout practices of his youth, and his ten children were all educated in the faith. The youngest son, Nicholas, developed a vocation to the priesthood and studied at the University of Baal, where he earned a doctorate degree in theology. For many years, he served as a parish priest of Sashlin. John, the eldest son, became governor during his father's lifetime. He testified to his father's virtues as follows, quote, My father always retired to rest at the same time as his children and servants, but every night I saw him rise again and heard him praying in his chamber until morning. Often, too, he would go in the silence of the night to the old church of St. Nicholas or to other holy places. At times, Nicholas would retire into solitude in the valley of the Melch, but when he was about 50 years old, he felt irresistibly drawn to abandon the world altogether and spend his days in a contemplative life of solitary. He revealed his new vocation to his wife, who recognized the will of God and did not oppose her husband. Nicholas resigned his offices, placed his affairs in order, and took leave of his wife, his father, 
and all his children on October 16, 1467, just three and a half months after the birth of his last child. Nicholas must have amply provided for his family's financial future because the family never seems to have suffered in a material fashion from the loss of its provider. At the time of his leaving, Nicholas went barefoot and bareheaded, wearing simple clothes and carrying in his hands his rosary and his staff. His destination appears to have been Strasbourg, but before crossing the frontier, he received the hospitality of a peasant, a friend of God, who persuaded him to remain in his own country. The next morning, when a fierce thunderstorm producing lightning in the direction of which he meant to travel, Nicholas accepted this as a sign of God and retraced his steps. His remains are found in a shrine under the black marble altar of the present church of Saxelin. The clothes formerly worn by the saint are said to be kept in a cupboard of the church, but his rosary was broken into pieces for distribution among members of his family. In 1917, the fifth of his birth was celebrated throughout Switzerland with remarkable enthusiasm. Thirty years later, his name was added to a list of saints when he was canonized in 1947 by Pope Pius XII. Pippin of Landen, the Duke of Bradbant, had the distinction of being the husband of Blessed Ita and the father of Grimold and two sainted daughters, St. Gertrude of Nivelles and St. Bega. Considered to have been the wisest statesman of his time, he was the mayor of the palace for three monarchs, King Gloiter II, King Dagobert I, and the youthful King St. Sigebert. When King Dagobert succumbed to his sinful life, Pepin boldly rebuked him and continued to show his disapproval until the king repented. But when Bishop St. Amadus also attempted to convert Dagobert from his destitute life, Dagobert banished the bishop from the realm. Somehow, even though Pepin's disapproval was just as severe, unrelenting, as was the bishop's, Pepin seemed indispensable to the king and he remained securely at court. The king held Pepin in such high regard that he placed his son, St. Sigebert, in Pepin's care when Sigebert was only three years old. When the doting father crowned the child king of Austrasia, Pepin was entrusted with the education and care of the youth. Just before Dagobert died in 638, he demonstrated the trust he placed in Pepin's honesty by appointing Pepin to serve as administrator of the kingdom for his successor, the eight-year-old King Sigebert. A man of lesser worth might have taken advantage of the situation to enhance his own fortune position, but the trust Dagobert held with Blessed Pepin was well placed. While serving at the capacity of administrator for the kingdom, Pepin relied on the advice of two holy bishops. And though a faithful minister to the king, he placed his foremost duty to the king of kings. Pepin considered himself the humble servant of the people. He protected Christian communities of the north against the warlike invasions of the Slavs. He worked hard for the spread of the Christian faith, and he appointed the most virtuous and learned men to serve as bishops. Pepin was described as a lover of peace, a constant defender of truth and justice, a true friend of all servants of God, a terror of the wicked and father of his country, the zealous and humble defender of the religion. He was also a wise and virtuous man who cared for young Sigebert as though he were his own son. Under Pepin's guidance, Sigebert became a saint and is regarded as one of the most blessed among the French kings. Even with all the official duties that fell on him, Pepin did not neglect his own family. He and his wife, Blessed Ita, trained their children in virtue and instilled in them a love of all that was holy. The eldest of their three children, St. Bega, married and became a mother of Pepin of Herstal, who grew up to become a founder of the Carolingian dynasty. St. Gertrude, died in 659, serves as the first abbess of the monastery founded by her mother at Navelles and was regarded as a saint immediately after her death. 
Blessed Pepin died in 646 and was buried at London, but his body was later translated to the monastery founded by his wife at Nivelles, where it lays in the same tomb as that of St. Ita and close to the altar of his daughter, St. Gertrude of Nivelles. St. Louis Martin, 1823-1894, was a watchmaker by trade and quite a successful one. He also skillfully managed his wife's lace business. But as with many men, Louis's life was not turned out all the way he had planned. Born into a family of soldiers, Louis spent his early years at various French military posts. He observed the sense of order and discipline that army life engenders. His temperament, deeply influenced by the peculiar French connection between the mystical and the military, tended towards things of the spirit. Eventually, Louis settled down in a small city in France and pursued his watchmaking trade. He loved the city of Alicon. It was a quiet place and he was a quiet man. It even had the lovely trout stream nearby, offering him the opportunity to pursue his favorite recreation. At 22, young Louis sought to enter a religious life at the monastery of the Augustan Canons of the great St. Bernard Hospice in the Alps. The blend of courage and charity of the monks and their famous dogs manifested in rescuing travelers in alpine snows appealed powerfully to Louis Martin. Unfortunately, the abbot insisted that the young candidate learn Latin. Louis, whose bravery would have carried him to the heights of the Alps in search of any lost pilgrim, got himself lost among the peaks and valleys of Latin syntax and grammar. His most determined efforts failed. He became ill and dispirited and abandoned his hopes at the monastic life. Louis and Zelie eventually met in Alcone on July 13, 1858. Louis, 34, and Zelie, 26, married and began their remarkable voyage through life. Within the next 15 years, Zelie bore nine children, seven girls and two boys. Quote, we lived only for them, Zelie wrote. They were our happiness. The family lived a comfortable lifestyle, but they also suffered the loss of four children at an early age and had to deal with the rebellious daughter. The couple lived modestly, reached out to the poor and the needy, and led prayers in the household. St. Therese would later write, quote, God gave me a father and a mother who were more worthy of heaven than of earth. In 1877, at age 45, Zelie Martin died of breast cancer. Louis and his daughters moved to the zoo. Gradually, his daughters left to enter the convent. Despite his loneliness, he said, quote, It is a great, great honor for me that the good Lord desires to take all of my children. If I had anything better, I would not hesitate to offer it to him. Louis died in 1894 after suffering greatly, including a three-year stay at a psychiatric hospital. Louis and Zelie Martin were beatified by Pope Benedict XVI in 2008 and canonized by Pope Francis in 2015. Their feast day is July 12th. King St. Louis IX of France, who reigned from 1226 until his death in 1270, serves as an ideal role model and intercessor for fathers today. Catholic monarch, devoted husband of Marguerite of Provence, father of eleven and holy crusaders, St. Louis exemplified the Christian ideal of serving God with all one's heart, mind, and soul. One of the great treasures that remains from this saint of Holy Mother Church is his beautiful moving letters of fatherly advice written to his firstborn son and eventual successor, Philip III. Quote, Dear son, since I desire with all my heart that you will be well instructed in all things, it is in my thought to give you some advice to this writing. For I have heard you say several times that you remember my words better than those of anyone else. Therefore, dear son, the first thing I advise you is to fix your whole heart upon God and love him with all your strength, for without this no one can be saved or be of any worth. You should, with all your strength, shun everything which you believe to be displeasing to him. 
And you ought especially to be resolved not to commit mortal sin, no matter what may happen, and should permit all your limbs to be honed off and suffer every manner of torment rather than fall knowingly into mortal sin. If our Lord send you any adversity, whether illness or other in good patience, and thank him for it, you should receive it in good patience and be thankful for it. For you ought to believe that he will cause everything to turn out for your good, and likewise you should think that you have well merited it, and more also, should he will it, because you have loved him but little, and served him but little, and have done many things contrary to his will. If our Lord send you any prosperity, either health or body, and other thing, you ought to thank him humbly for it, and you ought to be careful that you are not the worse for it, either through pride or anything else. For it is a very great sin to fight against our Lord with these gifts. Dear son, I advise you, accustom yourself to frequent confession, and that you choose always, as your confessors, men who are upright and sufficiently learned, and who can teach you what you should do and what you should avoid. You should carry yourself that your confessors and other friends may dare confidently to reprove you and show you your faults. Dear son, I advise you that you listen willingly and devoutly to the services of the Holy Church, and when you are in church, avoid to frivolously and trifling. And do not look here and there, but pray to God with lips and heart alike, while entertaining sweet thoughts about him, and especially at the Mass, when the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ are consecrated and for a little time before. Dear son, have a tender, pitiful heart for the poor, and for all those who you believe to be in misery of heart and body, and according to your ability, comfort and aid them with some alms. If you have any unrest of heart of such a nature that may be told, tell it to your confessor or to some upright man who can keep your secret. You will be able to carry more easily the thought of your heart. Dear son, see, see to it that all your associates are upright, whether clerics or laymen, and have frequent good converse with them, and flee the society of the bad, and listen willingly to the word of God, both in open and in secret, and purchase freely prayers and pardons. Love all good, and hate all evil, in whomsoever it may be. Let no one be so bold to, as to say in your presence words which detract and lead to sin, and do not permit words of detraction to be spoken of another behind his back. Suffer it not that any ill be spoken of God and his saints in your presence, without taking prompt vengeance. But if the offender be a clerk or so great a person that you ought not to try him, report the matter to him who is entitled to judge it. Dear son, give thanks to God often for all the good things he has done for you, so that you may be worthy to receive more, in such a manner that it may please the Lord that you come to the burden and honor of governing the kingdom. You may be worthy to receive the sacred unction wherewith the kings of France are consecrated. Moreover, I advise you to love dearly the clergy, and, so far as you are able, do good to them in their necessities, and likewise love those by whom God is most honored and served, and by whom the faith is preached and exalted. Dear son, I advise that you love and reverence your father and your mother willingly remember to keep their commandments and to be inclined to believe their good counsels. Dear son, I advise you always to be devoted to the Church of Rome and to the sovereign pontiff, our father, and to bear him the reverence and honor which you owe to your special father. Further the right with all your strength. Moreover, I admonish you that you strive more earnestly to show your gratitude for the benefits which our Lord has bestowed upon you, and that you may know how to give him thanks thereof. Finally, my sweet son, I conjure and require that you, if it please our Lord that I should die before you, you should have my soul secured with masses and orisons, that you should send through the congregations of the kingdoms of France, 
and demand their prayers for my soul, and that you may grant a special and full part in all the good deeds which you perform. In conclusion, dear son, I give you all the blessings which a good and tender father can give to his son. And I pray, our Lord Jesus Christ, by his mercy, by the prayers and merits of his blessed mother, the Virgin Mary, and of angels and archangels, and all of, and of all the saints to guard and protect you from doing anything contrary to his will, and to give you the grace to do it always, so that he may be honored and served by you. And this may he do to me as to you, by his great bounty, so that after this mortal life we may be able to be together with him in eternal life, and see him, love him, and praise him without end. Amen. And glory, honor, and praise be to him, who is the one God, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, without beginning and without end. Amen. St. Thomas More was born in London on February 7, 1478. His father, Sir John More, was a lawyer and judge who rose to prominence during the reign of Edward IV. His connections and wealth would help his son Thomas rise in station as a young man. Thomas's mother was Agnes Granger, the first wife of John More. John would have four wives during his life, but they each died, leaving John as a widower. Thomas had two brothers and three sisters, but three of his siblings died within a year of their birth. Thomas More entered Oxford in 1492, when he would learn Latin, Greek, and prepare for his future studies. In 1494, he left Oxford to become a lawyer, and he trained in London until 1502, when he was finally approved to begin practice. Almost as soon as More became a lawyer, he found himself contemplating another path in life. For two years, between 1503 and 1504, More lived next to the Carthusa Monastery, and he found himself called to follow their lifestyle and simple piety. He often joined in their spiritual exercises. By 1504, More had decided to remain in the secular world and stood for election to Parliament. He did not forget the pious monks who inspired the practice of his faith. More married his first wife, Jane Colt, in 1505. They would have four children together before her death in 1511. Their marriage was reportedly happy, and Thomas often tutored her in music and literature. After Jane's death in 1511, Thomas quickly remarried to Alice Harper Middleton, who was a wealthy widow. He accepted Alice's daughters from her previous marriage as his own. In 1504, Moore was elected Parliament to represent the region of Great Yarmouth, and in 1510 rose to represent London. During his service to the people of London, he earned a reputation for being honest and effective. You can read more of St. Thomas More's life in the book St. Thomas More, A Great Man in Hard Times by E. E. Reynolds. Following his death, it was revealed that More wore a hair shirt, a garment that's destined to be itchy, and worn it to the sign of atonement and repentance. It became evidence to all that he was a man of deep piety, voluntarily self-discipline, and penitence. More's decapitated body was buried in the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula at the Tower of London in an armored grave. His head was put on display, but his daughter Margaret possibly bribed someone to take it down. The skull may be in the vault in the church in Canterbury. Thomas More has been widely remembered as a man of tremendous integrity, and he has since been described as a martyr and canonized a saint. Pope Leo XIII beatified More in 1886, and he was canonized by Pope Pius XI on May 19th, 1935. His feast day is June 22nd. Jesus told his apostles, You will be hated by all because of my name, and whoever endures the end will be saved. It is difficult to think of another venerated Catholic who experienced this at a more extreme level than Blessed Franz Jägerstatter, 1907-1943. An Austrian farmer and family man who sacrificed his life in order to not serve the satanic. He was a farmer from a village in Upper Austria which is less than 14 miles 
from Markel on the River Inn in Bavaria, Germany, where Joseph Ratzinger was born. Both the future pope and the future martyr would often go to pilgrimages to the Marian Shrine of However, Franz was not always pious. As a young man, he sowed quite a few wild oats and even fathered an illegitimate child, like St. Augustine. St. Augustine, he was a father. In 1936, Franz ma married Francica, a devoutly Catholic woman who inspired him to grow closer to God. They would have three children. For their honeymoon, they went on a pilgrimage to Rome. Eventually, Franz became a third-order Franciscan and sacristan at his parish. By this time, he read scripture every evening. In March 1938, Hitler annexed his own Heimat of Austria to the Third Reich. In February 1943, the young and healthy Jägerstatter was conscripted into the German army. A few days after his refusal, he was imprisoned. During this time, Franz had ample opportunities to change his mind. The more he read the Bible and the more he deepened his faith, though, the more repulsed he was at Nazism and he continued to refuse to join the military. He proposed to serve as a paramedic on the front, but this request was turned down. In July, he was sentenced to death, and on the afternoon of August 9, 1943, he was decapitated. He was 36 years old. Unfortunately, his legacy has been hijacked by the pacifist movement. This is largely the work of Gordon Zahn, an American pacifist sociologist, who, 1964, biography of the Austrian martyr and solitary witness, introduced him to a broader audience. Klaus von Stauffenberg, he took part in the attack on Poland, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, and the Tunisian campaign during the Second World War. He was one of the leading members of the failed July 20th plot of 1944 to assassinate Adolf Hitler and to remove the Nazi party from power. He was executed by a firing squad shortly after the failed attempt known as Operation Valkyrie. He used the just war theory and spoke with priests and cardinals to take advice for direction regarding his attempt to tyrannicide. He spoke his last words before he was shot, Long live our sacred Germany. He married a lady named Nina on September 26, 1933 in Bamberg. They had five children who were not told of his father's deeds and were placed in a foster home for the remainder of the war and were forced to use n new surnames as Stauffenberg became too taboo. Also, like I said, St. Augustine, he was a father. He had a child out of wedlock, but he's still considered a father. And obviously, last but not least, St. Joseph. Obviously, this is not an exhausting list, but every father should have a devotion to St. Joseph, the foster father and the son of God. And the great book, uh, The Glories of St. Joseph, that is the best book on St. Joseph that you can get to read about his life and devotions to him, what the saints say about him. Well, that should about wrap it up. Uh, to all the fathers out there, a blessed and happy Father's Day to all. God bless. This is Steve Cunningham for CensusFidelium.us. May God love you and Mary keep you.